You don't have to be a particularly astute observer of pop culture to recognize that we live in an age of deep anxiety. Right? So from from the whole Marvel franchise in which the world is constantly on the verge of imminent destruction and is just saved in the nick of time, movie after movie after movie. To the popularity of all the, the, the zombie apocalypse shows or, or those dystopian television shows that seem to dominate the, the streaming services these days, like the, like the Handmaid's Tale or Man in the High Castle. You, you look at all those things and you realize ho- Hollywood's aware of something. Hollywood is deeply aware of our anxieties, and part of what they're doing is they're helping us externalize those anxieties. You put them up there on the movie screen or on your big TV screen. And having externalized them, and then it all gets resolved neatly with a nice bow at the end, You soothe those anxieties. It's not as if those fears, those anxious thoughts about the future are unfounded. From climate change, ever worsening hurricanes and wildfires and storms, to all the social unrest that we've seen, the the rising murder rates that we've all been reading about this last week to, of course, a worldwide pandemic that to date has killed more than four and a half million people worldwide. It's easy, it's easy to think that the world is close to collapse. So so it wasn't a surprise this week when I opened up one of my news apps on my phone and they had prominently featured an article on how to pack a go bag in case of emergency, in case you need to flee your home quickly. But it wasn't just a go bag. There was also how to pack a stay bin in case you can't get out of your house and you've just got to bunker down for, for the long run. Most of the time, pop culture and Christianity are operating on entirely different wavelengths. But I think on this, we agree. The end of the world is coming. It is. And and the question all of us face is, how do we get ready for it? What do you need in your go bag? Not for a wildfire or a hurricane. What do you need in your go bag for the end of the world? That's the question we're going to answer this morning. And to answer that question, we turn again to Luke's gospel in our series that we're calling Jesus Fulfilled, because Luke is showing us how everything that he's been talking about in his gospel is coming to fulfillment in Jesus right here at the end. So turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 21, verse 5. We're going to pick up uh, where we left off last week, chapter 21, verse 5. If you're using one of the black Bibles provided in the pews, that's found on page 934, 934. Luke 21, we're going to look at the remainder of the chapter from verse 5 all the way to the end. You're going to be helped, I think, if you just leave your Bible open, because I'm going to be reading through it slowly, referring to different sections of it. If you're not familiar with using a Bible, the the big numbers are the chapter numbers, the small numbers are the verse numbers. That way you know where to look when I'm referring to something. Luke chapter 21, I'm I'm going to read the first few verses 
of, of our section, beginning with verse 5, and then I'm going to skip and I'm, I'm going to read the end, the last couple of verses, just so that we understand the context of, of what we're dealing here with this morning. So Luke chapter 21, verse 5. As some were talking about the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and gifts dedicated to God, he, that is Jesus, said, these things that you see, the days will come when not one stone will be left on another that will not be thrown down. Now, flip over to the very end, because this is helping us understand the context. Verse 37. During the day, he was teaching in the temple, but in the evening, he would go out and spend the night on what is called the Mount of Olives. And then all the people would come early in the morning to hear him in the temple. Now, that little section there at the end, verses uh, 30. 7 and 38, it's, it's actually forming a bookend. We've read this before. It, it came right at the very beginning uh, of our section at the end of chapter 19, verse 47. It says, every day he was teaching in the temple. The chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders, the people were looking for a way to kill him, but they could not find a way to do it because all the people were captivate, captivated by what they heard. Every morning they're coming out to hear him teach again. So, so this whole section that we've been in has, has been kind of looking at what's been going on this, this last week that Jesus has been in Jerusalem. Every morning he gets up to teach. Every day the leaders try to figure out a way to kill him. Every day they fail because the people are so captivated by what he's saying. Well, in our passage this morning, as Jesus leaves the temple, it will turn out he's leaving it for the very last time. And as he leaves it for the last time, the disciples remark to him about the, about the beauty of the temple, about these amazing gifts that people have given to, to make the temple beautiful. And their remarks provoke Jesus to a warning. And that's what we read there in, in verse 6. A, a warning that all this beauty that you see, all this magnificence, this incredible temple that you're so impressed with, all of it is going to be thrown down. Now, as we get into the chapter, what you're going to see is that Jesus understands the coming destruction of Jerusalem and the temple is but a foreshadowing of the end of the world itself in judgment. Quite understandably, the disciples want to know, when is that going to happen? Actually, when are both things going to happen? When is the, when is the city and the temple going to fall? And when is the end of the world going to come? And the rest of chapter 21 is Jesus' answer. So uh, here, here's the big idea of, of chapter 21. Here's the main point. The end is coming. So get your go bag ready. The end is coming. So get your go bag ready. As we consider what Jesus says should be in our go bag for the end of the world and what should not be in our go bag for the end of the world, the question that I want all of us asking this morning is, Am I ready? Am I ready? All right. Well, if you know anything about packing go bags for an emergency, it's as, it's as important to know what not to put in it as what to put in it. And, and that's where Jesus starts. So, so first, Jesus says, you know what you don't need in that go bag? You don't need alarm. So first, don't be alarmed. No alarm should go in that go bag. Look at verse, uh, look at, let's, let's, let's pick it up with verse seven. Teacher, they asked him, 
So when will these things happen? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And then he said, watch out that you are not deceived. For many will come in my name saying, I am he. And the time is near. Don't follow them. When you hear of wars and rebellions, don't be alarmed. Indeed, it is necessary that these things take place first, but the end won't come right away. Then he told them, nation will be raised up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be violent earthquakes and famines and plagues in various places, and there will be terrifying sights and great signs from heaven. All right, Jesus identifies three things that might might deceive the disciples, might deceive you into being alarmed that the end has arrived. So so he points first to to false messiahs, claiming that the end is near, and so you should follow them. That's verse 8. And and then he points, you see, in verse 9 and 10 to to social unrest of all kind and and political upheaval. And and then in in verse 11, he, he points to natural disasters, humanitarian catastrophes, accompanied by signs in the heavens. All right, so what does that mean? It means it's going to feel like the end of the world. And there are going to be people saying it is. But don't be fooled, Jesus says. It's actually necessary that all of these things happen, things that make it feel like the world is coming to an end, but the end won't come right away, verse 9. These things must take place first, but the end won't come right away. All right, so now that, I think, raises immediately the question for us, what are the things that might deceive us today into thinking that the end is nigh, and so we start throwing alarm into our go-bag? Well, of course, there are false messiahs in every age. It seems to me that ours are less likely to wear a religious mantle these days more likely to come with political promises. I can fix it. Follow me. Or or maybe technological promises. My technology, my invention, this device, this program, this platform, going to save the world. It's going to change humanity. There's certainly no shortage of real or imagined catastrophes to stoke our fears. Right. There's there's climate change. There's this pandemic that we're still in. There's a lot. I don't know if you've been paying attention, but there's a lot these days in the media about artificial intelligence run amok. That's kind of scary. There's there's the rise of China, geopolitical conflict, the, the, the fear that maybe America will no longer be the, the hegemonic power that we are all used to being. And of course, there are plenty of people who are willing to use our fears to manipulate our loyalties and usually, at the same time, raid our checkbooks. I'm not saying that there's nothing to be concerned about when it comes to things like climate or technology or geopolitics. These are, these are very real concerns. They deserve our attention. 
Jesus' point is that all of those kinds of things are sure to come, and we should not be deceived by them. Nor should we be alarmed by the upheaval as if the end is nigh. They are not the end, Jesus says. All those things. That's not it. That's not the end. Now, what does that mean? Well, as we're going to see later, I think that the end is going to be very clear. It is going to be undeniable. It is going to be unmistakable. So, so don't be fooled by the, the local crises. Don't be fooled by the, the temporary political crisis that, that you might find yourself in or, or the temporary social crisis that you might be experiencing. Don't be deceived, Jesus says. Don't let conspiracy theories buffalo you into following some cult figure or fringe theory or utopian promise. Why are we so susceptible to being deceived? Why, why are we so susceptible to, to taking on this massive sense of alarm that the end is nigh, so i got to do something? Well, I think it's our, our concern for the future, right? I mean, we, we have loved ones that we care about. We care about our own lives. It is so easy to be deceived because we do feel alarm for the future. And yet so often our eyes honestly get focused on the wrong future, especially as Christians. It's so easy to confuse protecting our civil and civic future to confuse that with confidence in our spiritual future. You, you know, they're not the same. I have no idea what's going to happen to America. Well, I mean, I do in the grand scheme of things. America, like every other nation, is going to fall and be judged by God. I'm not even talking about that. I don't know what's going to happen in the next election. I don't know what's going to happen two elections from now. I don't know what's going to happen with climate change here in the Pacific Northwest. I don't know any of that. Now, should I be concerned about it? Sure, within reason. But should it fill my life with alarm? By no means. By no means. Faith protects us from being deceived because faith knows the future. You see, it's, when I, it's, it's the future that I don't know that, that works me up, that, that gets me scared, that, that gets me alarmed, that begins to make me say all sorts of things on social media that I should never have said, that, that begins to make me take actions, maybe financially or with friendships and relationships that I really shouldn't have done. The future I don't know scares me scares you. But Christian, it's the future that you know that actually matters. Faith knows that Jesus is coming back. Faith knows that he is going to protect us all the way to the end, no matter what comes in the meantime. Faith knows that we're not going to miss him when he comes. 
And so what does faith do? Well, in the midst of all of this upheaval and tumult, amidst all of this uncertainty, faith produces discernment. Not fear. Fear produces alarm. But faith produces discernment. And it says, yep, it's bad. It is bad out there. It's not good. Don't like it. To the extent that I'm able, I want to try to address it. But Jesus told me it was going to happen. He said all these things were going to come. And so I don't need to be alarmed. I don't need to be filled with fear and anxiety. I don't need to start casting about for some savior, some other savior for an intermediate future that I don't know. I can trust the savior that I do know for the future, the ultimate future that I know is coming. So we're not going to be deceived into putting alarm into our go bag. But as you're packing that bag, Jesus says also, yeah, you don't need alarm. You, also, you don't need anxiety. I'm going to press in on anxiety a little bit more. You don't need anxiety. Don't, so, so this is second, don't be anxious. Look at verse 12. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you. They will hand you over to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors because of my name. This will give you an opportunity to bear witness. Therefore, make up your minds not to prepare your defense ahead of time, for I will give you such words and a wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will even be betrayed by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends. They will kill some of you. You will be hated by everyone because of my name, but not a hair of your head will be lost. By your endurance, gain your lives. All right, having told them that the end is not coming soon, he then tells them that doesn't mean it's going to be easy in the meantime. Right before the end comes in all of its climactic upheaval, you, Christian, are going to be persecuted. You're going to be arrested, interrogated, thrown into prison. Verse 12, you're going to be betrayed by those who are closest to you. Some of you are going to be killed and all of you will be hated because of your allegiance to Jesus. That's verses 16 and 17. And, and interestingly, you know, that's exactly what happened. If you, if you read volume two of Luke's work, the book of Acts, that's what we see happen to all of Christ's disciples. Now, he's telling them this in advance, and he knows that this is likely to produce great anxiety in them. So he tells them, verse 14, make up your mind, literally settle your heart. Settle your heart. That you don't need to anxiously prepare your defense for when that suffering comes. I think we all know what it's like to to anxiously prepare for something. Right, maybe preparing for a job interview. And so we work with a coach and we try to think through in advance every possible question that might come our way so that we're not caught off guard. We, we set our anxiety at ease by preparing 
I, I remember I used to, um, like in a previous life, no, not really, not previous life, it just feels that way. When I was in high school, uh, I, uh, I was very involved in music. Uh, so I played piano, I competed at the state level, I played clarinet, I competed at the state level. And what, what, what do you do when you're going into one of those competitions? You prepare. I practiced. I rehearsed. I went over it again and again. I'll never remember walking into um, a, an examination room for one of my clarinet competitions. And I was so, despite all of my, anxiety, all of my preparation, and I, I ended up doing great, but despite all of it, right, I was so filled with anxiety that my hands were shaking so that I could not play the clarinet. They made me stand against the wall and lean against it, right, to like calm my hands down. We, we, we know what this is like, right, to prepare anxiously. What are we doing when we do that? We're trying to control for outcomes. I want to land that job. I want to win that competition. And, and so we think through every potentiality. We, we rehearse all our replies. We make a plan A and then a plan B and then a plan C. And Jesus tells them and us not that it's bad to plan. And if you're going into a clarinet competition, you should practice. If you're going into a job interview, you should definitely prepare for it. But he says to them and to us, when it comes to facing the world's opposition, yeah, you don't need to rehearse anxiously. You, you actually can't control what's coming. And you're not going to be able to manage it in your own wisdom and in your own plans. Instead, Jesus says, trust me. Trust me to provide what you'll need. There, verse 15, the words and the wisdom that you'll need in that moment. Trust me. He's actually, I think, referring there in verse 15 to the promise of the Holy Spirit, though Luke doesn't use those words here. And it is exactly what we see throughout the book of Acts time and again, as the apostles and others were hauled before the authorities, the Spirit gave them the words that they needed to defend their faith in Christ. In fact, Jesus says, this is the purpose for the persecution that's coming. This is the purpose for the suffering that's, that's coming. Persecution, while we wait for Christ's return, is not evidence that God has forgotten about us. It's not evidence that God's not there. It's actually God's plan and purpose to give us an opportunity to bear witness. Verse 13. This will give you an opportunity to translate bear witness. We could also say to be martyrs. Because that's the word. The, the word for witness is the word for martyr. And so many of the witnesses of Christ would witness at the giving of the very own life that martyr would eventually come to mean someone who gave their life for the testimony. But, but actually, Jesus is saying all of you. All of you are going to be given an opportunity to be martyrs, to be witnesses for the faith, for the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. Now, Christian, nowhere are we told in Scripture to seek out persecution and suffering. But nor are we told 
to do whatever it takes to avoid it. And honestly, that's usually where I am. I'm over there trying to avoid it. And my guess is that's what you're doing too. Maybe not all the time, but more than you want. I mean, here's the way it works in our, in our experience, right? Persecution, opposition because of our faith in Christ, it never, or I should say it almost never catches us by surprise. We can usually see it coming. We find ourselves in a, in a, in a conversation at work. And we know, oh, the, the, the question about what did I do this weekend or or what, tell me, tell me something about yourself. We, we, know, we know questions are coming at us. And, and, I, and we know at that moment, boy, I could answer one way and be considered normal and a part of the group. Or I could answer another way, maybe a more truthful way, maybe a more honest way. And all of a sudden, I'm getting looks of scorn or pity or derision. In our experience, we can usually see the rejection coming with enough time to engage in evasive maneuvers. We duck. We stay silent. We come up with an alternative answer to the awkward question. Yeah, we avoid the discomfort in those situations of being rejected. But what Jesus tells us is that we've also missed the opportunity to be a martyr, to be a witness to the truth of the gospel in our own lives. And so the question I have to ask myself, the question I ask you, Christian, is your present comfort really worth more than your faithful witness? Is it? Given that you know the future, is it really worth it? You know, the promise of the Spirit is not a promise that bad things won't happen to you. It's not a promise that you're going to escape persecution physically or emotionally unharmed. No, it's, it's a promise that those who trust Christ will not be lost But by enduring in faith, our lives, literally our souls, verse 19, will be gained. This endurance that Jesus refers to there in verse 19, by your endurance, gain your lives. This endurance isn't about like, you know, gritting your teeth and bearing it. It's about what he was talking about a few verses above. It's about trusting that God will give us everything we need to endure by his spirit. Now, I think for some of us, we're we're really acquainted with anxiety. For others of us, I I think maybe we find ourselves thinking, "I'm, I'm not anxious. I just like to, you know, manage things. I like to be in control, right? I I would suggest to you that that high control is just the other side of the coin of anxiety. 
and high control, the need to control the people around me, the situations I'm in, is just as much an expression of unbelief as anxiety is. So I would simply ask you, what would it look like this week to control less and trust Christ more? Okay, we don't need alarm and we don't need anxiety in our go bag. Rather, we, we want the, the discernment and the endurance that faith produces. There's a third thing, though, that we don't need in our go bag, according to Jesus, and that's surprise. So third, don't, don't be surprised. Look at verse 20. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that its desolation has come near. Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. Those inside the city must leave it, and those who are in the country must not enter it, because these are days of vengeance to fulfill all the things that are written. Woe to pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days, for there will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will be killed by the sword and be led captive into all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Jesus now finally gets to the specific question that the disciples asked, the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. And what we see here is he does not want them to be caught by surprise. He warns them. He wants them literally to know, to recognize. They, they need some knowledge here. So he wants them to, to, to know that, look, when you see armies coming to surround the city, verse 20, it's over. It, it, it's over. There, there's not going to be a reprieve. There's not going to be a, a, a last-minute rescue. There's not going to be some negotiation between Jerusalem and Rome that lets everybody you know, go free. No, it's going to be terrible. When you see that, the day of God's vengeance has come, and he says you should flee the city, for there will be no mercy, not even for the pregnant or the nursing. What Jesus is doing here, he's, he's being like a good coach, honestly, right? Um, he, he, he's a coach who has studied the, the game tape ahead of time, and, and he wants them to know, like, just like a, like a football coach will, will, will study the tape of the opponent ahead of time and will say, guys, guys, don't be surprised. When you see this formation on the other side, this is what's going to happen. So we need to defend in a certain way, right? This is, this is what a coach does. This is what Jesus is doing here. They need some knowledge in advance. So when they see this happen, they are not caught by surprise. History records for us the brutality of the Roman siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And it's complete and utter overthrow as a result of the Jewish wars of rebellion. You can read about it in Josephus, a Jewish historian. It is sickening. It will turn your stomach. History also records that Christians remembered Jesus' words. And when the end came, Jewish Christians were not among the casualties. They, they saw the armies coming, and uh, an early historian records how the Christians fled 
to the outlying village of Pella. And so we're saved. Jesus concludes this section by placing the fall of Jerusalem in the context of an Old Testament prophecy, the prophecy of Daniel. You see that there in verse 24. They will be killed by the sword and be led captive into all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. In Daniel chapter 8 and Daniel chapter 12, the prophet foresaw a time when God's people would be subject to a terrible judgment and, and under, under, kind of trampled underfoot by the nations until the messianic son of man came to deliver his people and to restore God's rule. What's Jesus doing here? Well, essentially, Jesus understands that the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD was not just a historic event. Lots of cities have fallen. The fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD was an eschatological event. It was the beginning of the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy. And what that meant, what that would mean once it fell, is that all that was left was for the Son of Man to return in glory when the times of the Gentiles were fulfilled. So what does that mean for us? What it means for us is that we have no excuse. There is no reason for any of us to be caught by surprise on the day Jesus returns in glory. If God did not spare his own people, Israel, for their rejection of the Messiah when he came the first time, why would he spare any of us when that same son appears on the last day? And the reality is we have been warned. I'm warning you even now that the question is whether or not we're willing to, to recognize, to, to, to take on board the knowledge that our own desolation is near. That, that, that a day of vengeance and wrath from God is coming and it draws closer every day and rightly so. Are we willing to recognize that? Or do we just go on our way pretending that these words have not been spoken? What we need to do is to see the signs. Repent of our unbelief and flee, not to Pella, but flee to Christ for safety from the wrath of God's judgment to come. What, what, what are those signs you say? This world is filled with signs that it stands already under God's judgment. Every illness that racks your body is a sign that things are not the way they were meant to be. Every catastrophe that overtakes this world from the latest hurricane to the next wildfire are signs that this world is broken, that it is under judgment. Ultimately, every death is a sign. God's word is not to be trifled with. 
For he said at the very beginning to the very first man and woman, if you disobey me, you will die. Death is a sign of God's judgment. Can you see the signs? Can you recognize them? If so, you need to flee to Christ. That's where Jesus moves next. He says, don't be alarmed, don't be anxious, don't be surprised. But fourth, he says, don't be afraid. You don't need any fear in that go bag as you get ready for the end of the world. Look at verse 25. Then there will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars, and there will be anguish on the earth among nations bewildered by the roaring of the sea and the waves. People will faint from fear and expectation of the things that are coming on the world because the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is near. Having put the fall of Jerusalem into the context of God's eschatological and ultimate plans, Jesus now turns from that sign of the end of the world to the end of the world. He says, people will be overcome with fear, verse 26. There are going to be apocalyptic signs in the heavens, the sun, moon, and the stars. And there's going to be social and political upheaval, turmoil, and anxious anxiousness across the whole world. Upheaval, uncertainty, tumult, conflict. All of that kind of symbolized by this idea of the, the roaring of the waves that cannot be controlled and cannot be contained. All of that is going to characterize life on earth, Jesus says. When the end comes, verse 25. Now, I mean, at this point, it'd be, for some of you, a lot of fun if I would take a a big detour and kind of explain all the apocalyptic imagery. But let me just refer you to the whole series that we did in Revelation back in the spring. And and let let me just say at this point, Jesus is using Old Testament imagery as shorthand to describe the end of the world. And and the key thing that he wants us to know is that at that point, verse 27, everyone will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven in power and glory. He's referring to Daniel chapter 7. And the Son of Man, this divine figure, who receives dominion and rule over the entire cosmos from the hands of God himself, the Ancient of Days. Jesus says that day, and even the anticipation of that day, the expectation of it, is going to lead the nations who are in rebellion against God to faint from fear, and well it should. For that day, The day the Son of Man appears in power and glory, the day that Jesus Christ returns, is Judgment Day. But his focus here, Christian, is that the approach of that day need hold no fear for you. 
No fear needs to go in your go back. For it means your redemption is near. Not your redemption from sin. That's already happened. That happened when when you turned away from your sin and put your faith in Christ on that day. And at that moment, you were fully redeemed from your sin. No, what he's referring to here is your redemption from this fallen, broken, evil world. The consummation of your salvation is at hand. And so Jesus says, look, as, as, as the end draws closer and as you begin to see the signs that the end is nigh, that's the day to stand up, to lift up your heads in confidence because the approach of the end of the world is not a cause of dread for Christians. It is a cause for joy. How can that be? How can contemplating the very end of the world, the destruction of everything, how could that be a cause for joy? How could we actually anticipate standing before God on the last day with confidence and not fear? Friends, it's only through the good news of the gospel. Before God redeems us from this fallen world, he must first redeem us from our fallen selves, our fallen hearts. And that's exactly what he did through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. The the judgment that the fall of Jerusalem prefigured, the, the last day, judgment day, God actually brought forward into time and allowed it to fall on Christ on the cross There, on the cross, Christ bore our sins. There, on the cross, Christ suffered the judgment of the last day for our sins. This is why the cross of Christ is good news for sinners like you and me. This was the reason that the Son of Man came the first time. You you know, when Daniel shows us the coming of the Son of Man. It is a coming to exercise kingly authority. It is a coming to to actually exercise dominion. And friends, that doesn't just await the last day. It happened the first time when Christ gave his life on the cross. He was exercising royal dominion, conquering sin, setting his people free, all those who would ever turn from their sin and put their trust in him. He doesn't look like a king on that cross. I get it. He doesn't look glorified in that bloody, bloody place. But friends, there is no greater display of the power of God. There's no greater display of the glory of God than Christ exercising his kingly rule, rescuing his people from their sin by suffering it in himself and then conquering it. Through faith in Christ's death, we are forgiven and God raised Jesus from the dead so that through his life, we too can be made new. If you're not a Christian, understand that this is the good news. That the good news is not 
recapturing America to make a Christian nation. That the, the message of Christianity is not some utopian dream that everything's just going to get better and better if we'd all just love each other. No, the, the message of Christianity is that all who turn away from their sins and put their faith in Christ Jesus need fear judgment day no longer. Oh, this is what we want you to trust. This is what we want you to know. This is what we want you to believe. And I'd love to talk to you more about this. You can find me afterwards. Um, feel free to interrupt or, or contact us here at the church. But, but don't walk away without recognizing this truth that Christ has exercised kingly dominion by conquering sin for you if you will put your faith in him. Now, now, Christian, understand that if that day, Judgment Day, holds no fear for us, then there is no day that should hold fear for us. None of those intermediate days between today and that day are days of fear. They might be days of suffering. They might be days of trial. They will certainly be days of loss. And disappointment. For sure, there are going to be days of rejection and scorn. But all of those intermediate days, and, and even worse, oh, they may come. The Christian understand that each of those days are simply one day closer to the day of your redemption. So stand up. And lift up your heads with confidence and let those days come for they simply draw the day of our greatest joy ever closer. So if we shouldn't be alarmed and if we don't need anxiety in our go bag and certainly not surprise or fear. What should we do to prepare for the end of the world? What do we actually need in our go bag to be ready. Well, here's what Jesus says. Be alert. Be alert. Look at verse 29. Then he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they put out leaves, you can see for yourselves and recognize that summer is already near. In the same way, when you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Be on your guard so that your minds are not dulled from carousing, drunkenness and worries of life. Or that day will come on you unexpectedly like a trap. For it will come on all who live on the face of the whole earth. But be alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. So the first thing Jesus says, as he tells you what you should actually now put in your go bag, is you don't need to overthink this, people. Don't overthink it. Right? It's going to be obvious, as obvious as the signs of summer at hand. The tr How do you know summer's coming? The trees start putting out their leaves. 
When the trees start putting out their leaves, that means spring has arrived and summer is on the way. Pretty much guaranteed. In the same way, he says, his words are even more trustworthy than the signs of spring. So when we see these things happening, what things? Tumults and wars and rebellion and false messiahs and fearful expectation of the end of the world and natural catastrophes and persecution and apostasy. When you see these things, you can be certain that the end is drawing near. But of course, as I've been saying throughout this entire sermon, these, these are the things that are already happening, aren't they? So the end may not come right away, as Jesus said. But the end is near. How do you reconcile those two things? Well, the way Jesus reconciles it is simply by pointing out all that's left to happen is his return. God's had a plan from the beginning. He's been working out that plan. There have been many steps that needed to happen, that needed to be fulfilled before judgment day could come. Jesus just declared that with the fall of Jerusalem, all that has to happen has happened. The end is imminent when you think about the steps in God's plan that needed to be fulfilled. I think that's the point of verse 32. Not that the apostles wouldn't die before Christ's return, but that by the time of their death, nothing would be left to prevent his return in the economy of God. Christ's return is near. It is imminent. And if it seems like 2,000 years calls that into question, then I would just remind you, along with Peter, With the Lord, a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. He clearly does not count time the way we do. So what do we do? We should be alert. As believers, we should be alert and watchful. Jesus tells us, don't don't dull your minds with carousing and drunkenness and the cares of this life, lest we're caught unexpectedly by Christ's return, like, like, like a trap. Verse 35, those of us who live in a city, we're not used to like trapping until you discover that there are rats living in your backyard and then you discover traps like I did recently. And this is what traps do, right? Traps count on the fact that the rat isn't paying attention. He's just going along his day in and day out, just like always. Nothing ever changes. There is no fear. There is no harm. Bam, the trap gets him. Done it twice. It's very gratifying. <laughs> Jesus says, look, don't, don't be like that rat. Right? Be alert. The, the temptation even for us as Christians to think, ah, oh, it's a long way off. I can give myself to some of the things of the world. I can enjoy this world and some of its delicacies and promises. It'll be all right. Jesus says, don't do it. Don't do it. Be alert. Because this is how it's going to come on everyone else. It's going to take them by surprise. Not because the signs weren't there, but because they weren't paying attention. 
So don't assume that you can deal with all this stuff later. Don't assume that you've got plenty of time to get your act together, to get serious about religion, to get serious about following Jesus. Friends, today is the day. Jesus calls us to be alert. He calls us to pray that we would have strength to escape and to stand and be ready for his return. Christian, there are too many authors and too many religious leaders who have too much to gain these days from stoking and feeding your anxiety and your fear. It make me angry. It makes me angry when I see what they do in some of your lives. When you come to me with the, the anxiety and fear that their book or their podcast, radio show, or whatever has provoked in you. They will give an account for that someday. We are not to lead anxious, fearful lives. Jesus calls us in this, even though it's a passage that's all about the end of the world, he calls us to live lives with, with faith, confident, watchful, alert. So, so what should we be doing? Well, we should be about our master's business. What does that mean? It means if you're a parent, give yourself to raising your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. If you're married, give yourself to, to growing and nurturing a marriage that is a beautiful picture of Christ and his church. If you're employed, do your work as unto the Lord so that your work with integrity and honesty and, and good stewardship will, will, will be a witness to the Lord and Master that you serve. If you have a chance to be involved in politics, be involved. Be a good steward. Do, do what you can to make our common life here together better. Be about the life of discipleship, obedience, good stewardship, wherever God has put you. And, and while you're at it, be a witness. Take every opportunity to give a witness to who Christ is and what he's done and why you are able to live in this crazy mixed up world with such peace, with such confidence, with such a lack of anxiety. Be engaged with the Lord Jesus in prayer. Join us as a church as we pray together every week in light of the coming of the kingdom. So that when he comes, while the world will be caught off guard, we will be busy about our master's work, wherever that is. And so lifting up our heads, standing in the confidence of the gospel. What's in your go bag for the end of the world? The reality is, you only need one thing, and that is a watchful, expectant faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That faith will lead you to discernment. That faith will give you endurance. That faith will give you the knowledge that you need and the confidence that you need for this life all the way to the end. The thing is, you never know when the end will come. So today, 
is the day to pack that bag. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that we would be people of faith, not fear. People who are confident of your return and so able to live in this life not filled with anxiety, not filled with alarm, not filled with anger, certainly not filled with fear. Oh Lord, we pray that we would be men and women, a a church of faith, And so give witness to the truth of who you are. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.